Good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves home. Find a plastic chair that is close to you. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If I've not met you, I see some new faces. Would love to meet you after the service. I'm one of the pastors at Legacy and uh, get to teach the Word. Very excited about this passage today. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis 13. And we are, I think, on our third week now of a walk through the life of Abraham. I'm kind of excited, and I don't know if I said this last or one of the last two weeks, but this summer we're looking to go through Abraham. Next summer we'd like to go through Isaac. The summer after that, Jacob. And then the summer after that, Joseph. Or at least that's the plan right now, because <laughs> that's about the only way you're getting through the book of Genesis, you know, as a church, is to, to maybe break it up like that. But Abraham's one of my favorites. Um, so go ahead and turn to Genesis 13, and we are going to see him show us what leadership looks like today in faith. Again, this is a fun passage. We are going to be skipping through a few different passages today, not my typical MO to use a bunch of different ones, but the other ones we use, we're going to throw up on the screen. Just go ahead and keep your place there in Genesis 13. You know, a common statement that we use at Legacy Church all the time is that we are a people by the gospel for the gospel. And it just kind of sounds like jibberty-jab, just to say it like that. Like you just found a bunch of very shiny words and threw them in a sentence. Hopefully it looks cool maybe to say something like that, that we are a people by the gospel for the gospel. But we really have as a value as a church the fact that God's good news, and it is God's good news, by the way. We're the recipient. It's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. He brings us good news, and that good news does collect us together, right? It brings us within tight proximity of each other where we get to reflect on the goodness of what God has done for us and then and then flip our posture to where we're extending that same good news out to a broken city making disciples that will do the same thing so because of that because we believe it one of our biggest values is community community they're just the people that God has made the church you could say it that way but Whenever you take people that are floating around, orphans, I guess you could say, and bring them into a tight community, there are relational ramifications. Things just happen whenever that happens. I mean, we have enough people in this church alone um, that have fostered or have adopted in the past that could probably teach a conference on what exactly it looks like whenever you bring somebody who has never really experienced tight family and then bring them into a tight family quarters. Living quarters get tight, right? It's hard. It's not seamless, that's for sure. It can be difficult, even more so. Just consider, even more than that, consider that before the grace of God smiled upon you, you were, in effect, a spiritual orphan, wandering. No real home, no real people, no real family. I know we had family, I know we had parents, and probably an address, but not a spiritual one. Spiritually, we were wandering. Spiritually, we had no real tight people that would be our people. Spiritually, we did not have a place. This is one of my favorite passages in Psalm 68. Stay where you're at. But the psalmist says this, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. I love this part. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Now, how does God do this? How does God take the solitary and build a home for them? He does it through Jesus. Now, the psalmist didn't know the word Jesus or the person Jesus at this time, but that's exactly how God accomplishes this, building community and tight family out of wandering orphans. 
I also like how Paul says it many moons later. He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Okay, so one spirit, one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of many members, or of one member, but many, right? That's going to be key for us today. Not one member, but many. Many of us. And this is great news. This migration of orphans into tight living space, into tight family. But, and yet, it can get cramped, can it? Living tightly with others in the church, living tightly with others in family, extended family, it can get awfully stifling. It can get cramped. And a new spiritual entity, a new church, a new home, a new people. I remember becoming a Christian, feeling that crampedness coming in on me because all of a sudden people felt a responsibility for me. I didn't ask them to be responsible for me, but they were asking me questions I'm not typically used to answering, right? Holding me to an account when I'm not used to this thing called accountability. And then I found myself being mandated with a responsibility for those around me. Another thing I wasn't used to. I wasn't used to being responsible for anyone but myself. And then there's this new thing called honesty that I found in these tight living spaces. It's difficult. I think every Christian goes through a natural stage. Many of us are going through multiple stages off and on, maybe for too long, where we say, hey, listen, I want you close, but just semi-close. I do need my space. You could come up to like here. I want community up to here, right there, but I will be over here. I want you close, and I want to laugh with you, and I want to enjoy you, and I'll high-five you if I could do it from here, but I don't want you so close that you are kind of making me feel smothered. I don't want it to be too tightly cramped because when we get close, it could lead to offense, fighting, bitterness, strife, clamor. That's where that comes from. And I think it's in those moments where our theology is most on display. And I mean our theology of the gospel. I think our theology of the good news of God and how we see it, I think that is mostly on display with how we handle and engage each other. I think that's what this text is going to show us today. Let me explain. I grew up with a little brother. Some of you have met him, but he's a lot bigger than me, like several inches bigger than me, and he was always bigger than me, right? He was always the uber athlete in the family. He always could throw a tight spiral, probably still can't. Always made the first team in everything he did, and he was always smarter than me too, always reading books, like whole series of books, and read a thesaurus, read an encyclopedia, you know. I'm playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I'm even using the cheat code to go all the way to Mike Tyson because I'm too lazy to go through all the fighters. That's what I'm doing while he's reading books. So he's smarter than me, he's faster than me, he's better looking than me, he's bigger than me. So imagine how that went growing up, just the two of us. A little bit of infighting, right? Because he's got little brother syndrome and I got little man syndrome. So we're just going at it all the time. And one thing my mom would always say whenever we were really little is if you guys don't cut it out, I'm going to separate you two. I'm going to separate you two. It's funny. I could be at 40 and see people that are adults, 40, 50, 60, 70, and when they can't get it worked out, they just separate themselves. Some things just don't ever change. Even as adults, we got to get stuff worked out, and when we fail to do that, someone has got to go. Did you know that is the number one reason, reported by pastors all over the country, that is the number one reason people leave a church that they have already joined. 
So joining meaning partnership, membership, or this is just my home, I've been here forever, whatever that looks like for different churches out there, the number one reason for people departing from a church after they have joined that church is because of strife and conflict and infighting. Number one, by far. I don't think any pastors ever even really argued that. People saying, I'm uncomfortable being here. If you're here, one of us has to go. You're not leaving, so it might be me. And then they're gone, just like that. You know, another phrase we use all the time here is life on life. Sounds like another catchphrase, more jibberty jab, right? Life on life, where we try to communicate something with as few of words as possible. But we don't use that phrase as a staff without understanding what it really means and the price tag that comes with it. And we guard it, and we try to make sure it does not lose its value as much as we can. Life on life. You know, the fact is, though, is the, the better we get at life on life, this mode of living when we're in tight proximity with each other, the better we get at it, the more conflict we'll see. I mean, the better we really get at this thing called family and tight living and community, the better we get at it, the more clamor we're going to hear. The more infighting starts to rise to the top. It's not happening, life on life. It's not happening unless you experience moments where you're just cramped and you're tempted to just get out, right? In fact, if you are in some position right now in some family or church or group of Christian friends, whatever, and everything is easy and there are no problems and never any strife and never any infighting, you are likely very brand new to that group or you are not doing it right. That's, what, that's just the truth. And typically when things like strife and clamor and offense and, and collisions, whenever they come up, we immediately think this is broken. This is broken. This community is broken or this church is broken or my family is broken, but it's actually the opposite. It means that something is happening. There's an offense and there's relationships that are valuable and there's just gonna be friction. In fact, the relationships are tight enough to where friction actually generates heat. You could tell it and it hurts. So here's the big question I have for us today, and that is what happens when you get into tight quarters with each other and there's clamor and strife? What are you doing? Like, what's the easiest thing for you to do, your go-to? What's the hardest thing for you to do whenever there's strife and infighting? What does it look like? How long does it take? I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we look at the text today, because the text today is very different from the text last week. Last week we saw Abraham really miss the mark. He missed it big time at a varsity level, right? He put his wife in the friend zone. He has this beautiful wife. He says, let's just be bro and sis, right? Actually pushes her into an adulterous situation, all because he did not trust God. And yet today, this week, we get to see him represent trust. He rebounds today. He, he repents and he rebounds today. And this is why I love Abraham so much. We get to see a guy that looks a lot like us, don't we? I mean, he has some good days, he has some bad days, he is magnificently average. He is overwhelmingly underwhelming. He's very normal. So we're going to jump into this text in verse 1 of chapter 13 and follow along in his story. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It will show us Jesus more clearly, I believe. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place 
where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Let's just pause for a second right there. Abraham is actually heading back to where it all started. Very likely glad that Egypt is in the rearview mirror now. Right? Now what's interesting is it only takes one verse to say how they got from A to B. That's over 250 miles of journey, right? Doesn't give a lot of detail as to the inner workings of what that journey looked like, but I'm, I guess they weren't a lot, there was probably not a lot of chatting going on, right? Every time you'd hear a donkey or a, or a camel make a sound or you'd talk to a servant, it probably reminded Abraham how he got those things. Just a reminder of his past failure. It's taken him forever to get from A to B because of all the new treasure that they have. Just not a, not a lot on it. But when they finally get to the altar, it's still there. Still there. Hadn't been there for long. Abraham built this same altar with his own two hands. And the last time he built it, he cried out to the Lord. He cried out in the name of the Lord, giving his devotion to God, calling God his God, and now he's doing the exact same thing. This is a place of repentance for him. That's what's happening. So let's look at verse 5. We'll, we'll keep going. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Just pause for another second. You will see that the tension is shifting in the story. The last passage we looked at, the tension was locked up between Sarah and Abram right now it's between Abraham and Lot so the focus is shifting and you'll see that happen a few more times but right now they're sandwiched in a land that does not have enough resource to supply them both oh and there's enemies there too Canaanites and Perizzites there that's what we're seeing and the herdsmen and the servants are bickering and they're getting at it and they needed to have a really hard talk because this is an explosive situation okay it sounds kind of tame when you read it but think about it Think about what's, what's happening. I mean, think about your issues today. Are, are they not driven by some of the same variables that we see in this very story? This should help you actually place yourself in this story as well. Resources running out, right? Infighting, enemies around us. Isn't that how it is? Resources running out. I mean, I don't have the mental capacity. Sometimes people say, I don't have the emotional bandwidth for this. We run out of resources, low on the resource scale, and then we get into a place where there's infighting with people that we're living life on life with, and then we're always got the threat around us of, of our world crashing in and destroying us, always that threat. And what does it generate? Strife. Strife. We're in this text. So what does Abraham do? He leads. He leads well. I brought up two weeks ago when we started this. I wanted us as a church to be able to visualize and see what faith looks like and how trust really kind of walks along with a person like Abraham, but, but also he has some magnificent moments of leadership, and this happens to be one of them right here. We see that leadership goes first and is willing to come in last. Leadership goes first. It initiates. 
but is also willing to go last, willing to sacrifice. That's what I mean when I say that. I mean, Abraham just speaks right at the problem. Hey, there's a problem brewing. There's a problem that's getting a little bit out of control. I think we need to talk about it. We're kinsmen. Let's fix this. We can fix this. I like it. I like this. This is a cool part of the passage. I mean, just think about this. Not too long before this, I guess two or three weeks before this, he was manipulating and self-preserving and just being a doofus. And now he's fresh out of a worship service at an altar where he repented, and we see a very different person, a very different person. Now, this wouldn't be a notable story at all, really, if Abraham had not just handed the keys of the car to Lot and said, you pick. Don't you see everything in front of you? Just pick. I mean, that's what makes this story a memorable story. That's what makes this a story of interest. It wouldn't be a story. It would be normal if Abraham said, I'll tell you what, things aren't going on well between you and me, so I will take this 90% and you take that 10%. We would just cruise right on through that passage. That would be normal, but that's not what he does. It is Abraham's right to take as much as he wants and to take it first. He is the head of the tribe. He is the head of the family. He is the paterfamilias. They are only there because of God's mark and call on Abraham. It's not his entourage's right or entitlement to take what they want. He's giving it to them. That's what makes this an interesting story. That's what makes it notable. And I guess what I would have expected to see if I did not know the story as well as I do, I think what I have expected to see is for Lot to say, whoa, 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 what? No, 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 no. Listen, I only have what I have because of you. I mean, I got a lot of stuff, but it's really because of you that I have it. You, you, should, just, you should just take whatever you want and give me whatever you don't want. I mean, I'm just happy to be on team. I'm just happy to be on the team. That's what I would have expected him to say. But he fumbles and drops the ball instead. And he looks with his eyes, and he takes advantage of this situation, and he looks at what seems best. And we're going to find that in verse 10. So look back at your text. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Okay, so the land that Lot saw with his eyes looked a lot like the land of Egypt, where they just came from, right? It just looked too good to pass up. It just looked way too good to pass up. He was going to trust his eyes. He was walking according to the flesh. His eyes told him, this is the best. His heart said, I'm going to grab it. So he moves his tent to the outskirts of Sodom County, somewhere out there, outside the city limits. And you know, the interesting thing is about this text is the next time we find him, he's living in the suburbs. He moves his tent from outside to the Cedar Bluff area of Sodom, Sodom Heights. He's living in Sodom Heights. And then we will actually find him again working out of the city gate. It's Market Square. He'll be right there where all the action is. He gravitates closer and closer inward. But this is the interesting thing. Typically the church, teachers, pastors, have a little bit demonized the person of Lot and stuck a black hat on him really fast. Now he does fumble the ball here, but he's not a pagan. He's actually a better picture of someone who loves God but loves the world a lot more. Again, resonates. Again, very average, very normal. The, the, where, the, the where of and how of 
why I would say something like that is in 2 Peter. Peter actually comments on this, and he says this, and if God, or if he, rescued righteous Lot, calls him righteous, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He was a righteous man, made a bunch of dumb moves, ended up living in Sodom, but it kind of wrecked his heart a little bit to see what he was seeing. That's probably a little bit better picture of who Lot is. We are really quick to put white hats on some people and black hats on others, but <laughs> that, that lets us live in the middle. But again, these people are us. And Lot will be rescued from this place a little later in the story, but right now it just looks too good to pass up. Okay? All right, let's look at verse 14, and we'll go all the way to 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron, and there he built another. This is his third altar. There he built an altar to the Lord. So God appears to Abraham at a very crucial time and told him to lift his eyes. Lot lifted his eyes, and he just, he saw what he wanted to see, and he moved for it. But I want you to lift your eyes, God says. And then he promises, or he repeats the promise that he'd already given him, Right? He repeats it. Now listen, we believe as a church, or at least as pastors of this church, that every, every passage in this Bible, every text, has a singular interpretation. One interpretation. That's because authors have intent in the message. Whenever you write a letter or an email, you want the recipient to take something away from that. Not like 82 different things out of it, uh, open for interpretation. There is one, in, one interpretation. So if you are arguing with somebody over the interpretation of a passage, both of you might be wrong one of you might be wrong, but both of you cannot be right. One interpretation. But there are many applications. That's different. And there is, there is a treasure trove of about 30 applications I could find in this passage. But the one I'd like to focus on is that when strife comes to people who are living in close quarters, trusting God sometimes will mean sacrificing your rights and taking initiative. It means leadership. Trusting God here means going first and risking becoming last. It's a beautiful picture of this. But again, you know, if I was with Sarah, if we were all kind of like in the mix, watching all of this go down, we see Abraham and Lot on the top of this precipice, you know, where they were standing was about 3,000 feet above the valley. If you could imagine yourself being there, wouldn't you just want to kind of pull Abraham aside and have a little bit of a sidebar? Like, hey, wait a, wait a minute, bro. Pump the brakes a little bit. Why are you just handing him everything? Why are you just giving him a, a choice at all? This isn't your bad. This is his bad. He's only here because of you. Why are you deferring? Why are you even broaching this conversation? He should have already come to you. Why are you sacrificing at all? Now, why would my heart want to have that conversation with Abraham? Because that's just the normal for who we are. I think all of us would want to have that conversation. Normal is holding on to our rights very tightly. That's normal. Normal is placing myself over others 
Normal is expecting all of you to lift the relational weight with me. That's normal. That's why you have said things or thought things or you've heard other people say things or they may even be thinking, why should I talk to them about this? They know where to find me. I did all I was supposed to do. Have you ever had that thought before? It's not my bad, it's their bad. If they want to talk, they can call me. They got my number. After all, I texted them already and they never texted me back, so balls in their court. If they want to get things fixed, they can apologize, they can ask for forgiveness. I did all I'm required to do. I'm waiting on them. It's up to them. They need to be the ones to give concessions and to defer, not me. I didn't even do anything. Listen, this is where life on life will get you. It'll get you in places like this if you're doing it right. It'll put you in places where you're tempted to think and say these things. Because when God says he places solitary into families, he did not say it would be easy. He did not say it would be painless. It will take great courage. It will take great leadership. In fact, if you probably, or if, you're experiencing some sort of hurt or strife with people, it means that there was something valuable in that relationship. Something. Because if you have two things rubbing on each other and it causes friction, then they were close enough for that to happen. Right? But the, the thing in us, the residue from our fall, does not want to go first. We don't want to initiate reconciliation. We just kind of want it to magically happen. We want the other person to lift all the weight. We don't want to do that, and we definitely don't want to sacrifice. Ugh. Don't want to give up our rights. I mean, I'll fix things as long as I'm not giving things up. That's what we want to do. We want others to initiate. We want others to yield. This is why some of us have this Hatfield and McCoy level Cold War going on that has lasted a long time while we're waiting for the other party to flinch first so we don't have to give up anything, go first, or yield, or, or sacrifice anything. That's why it's been a struggle. When strife comes from tight living spaces, this can happen. In fact, there's a progression of how I've typically seen it happen, right? I'll even put it up on the screen, right? This is what it looks like. We either, first, we pretend it's not a big deal and we minimize the strife. Secondly, what we go to is we start to harbor and kind of tuck it all in and let the bitterness increase. And then third, it just gets too painful, so we leave. This could be family. This doesn't have to be church setting, by the way. It could be calm group. It could be your best bros. It could be family. It could be your marriage. Any, any community that you are doing life on life because of the beauty of the gospel, this is the progression that we can find ourselves going through. And the end result is total destruction where no one concedes, no one fights for what God bled for, no one leads, no one initiates, no one takes responsibility, no one sacrifices. And, and, and a day turns into a week, turns into a month, turns into a decade, turns into a lifetime to where people can't even remember what they were originally upset about, but they're wanting that other person to make it right. They know where to get you whenever they're ready. Whew. Listen, we need Jesus, don't we? We could be really wonky. We need Jesus. Not just legacy. Humanity needs Jesus. And like I said last week, he's not even explicitly listed in this passage, and yet he's the hero of it. Christ himself is the hero of this passage. I mean, the, the text just comes right off the page when you can see Jesus as a better version of what Abraham is doing because Jesus gave up his own rights, did he not? Not grabbing for what was his due entitlement as our paterfamilias, as the head of our tribe. 
didn't grab the better portion. Strife came between us and God at our hands, yet he initiates the process of reconciliation with us. Do you see this? Do you see this? He took responsibility. He built harmony at his cost. And then he just trusted God with the rest. It's very cool. I'm going to read a passage to you. We're going to put it up on the screen, the whole passage, because this is in Philippians, but I'm coming out of the J.B. Phillips translation. J.B. Phillips is a fun translation. It's an old one. It was real important in the Jesus movement back in the day. Um, it's just a thought-for-thought thought translation, but it's such a familiar passage, it helps a little bit. Paul says this to the church in Philippi, let Christ himself be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he, who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all the privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as mortal man and having become man. He humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. And the death he died was the death of a common criminal. So Peter's basically saying here, not Peter, but Paul is basically saying here, listen, let Jesus be our example. He gave up what was due him. Gave it up. He initiated it. He did all the heavy lifting for us. He reconciled. He trusted the Father. He is the Uber Abraham. He's the Uber. He's, he's the maximum Abraham. Now, we have freedom. We have some big freedoms in this passage, by the way, and in the gospel. The big freedom we have is we could be free to ignore what I just taught, free to fail, right? You're free to totally fail at this. You're free to sit and harbor bitterness and stack it like pancakes in your heart and take a record of every single wrong, and then when it's just too much, you could just leave. You're free to do that, and it won't move the needle of God's approval and affection for you. It just won't. <laughs> and you're free to do everything I just said perfectly until the end of time, and it still won't move the needle of God's approval and affection for you. Because Jesus fulfilled what we never could, the needle is set. He treasures us. We're free. You are totally free. But you are not free to have the freedom to do all of the failures in this and still say you believe the gospel. Not free to do that. Not free to do that. Not free to harbor all that bitterness. Not free to not initiate. Not free to always say the ball is in their court, their deal, they know how to find me. You're not free to do that and say you believe the gospel. That would be inaccurate. You know, if, if we are people by the gospel for the gospel, then we have to initiate, we have to sacrifice, we have to go first, and we have to risk coming in last. That's just what's on the docket. We are free to go first. We are free to be last. And this is why. Because we are free to be more satisfied with Jesus and his glory that we don't have to grab and hoard our own. Nothing to protect. Free to come in last because Jesus is first. He is my Alpha and Omega. And if I'm bear-hugging his glory and I'm so fixated and fascinated by the glory of God through the person of Jesus, then I'm fine starting it. I'm fine jumping in and saying, hey, man, we need to talk. Things are I'm fine coming in last. I'm fine getting spit on. I'm fine with them not texting me back. I'm fine with all of that because I'm so fascinated with Jesus. We're free. There's a freedom in doing this. By the way, we're free to do some other things, too. Just a little bit of application. We're also free to stop pretending and minimizing the pain. Listen, if it hurt, it hurt. Just own it. If what they did hurts you, then it hurt. If you're mad, you're mad. Come on now. 
there's a little bit of this weird thing that we do where we say, ah, it didn't hurt, though. Yeah, it's pretty crummy what they did, but I'm not, I'm not swole about that or anything. I'm fine. It didn't hurt. You know why you're saying that? It's because it allows you to not do anything. Because if there's not something going on, it doesn't have to be something. Because if there's no strife, you don't have to get involved and kind of get your hands dirty and start fixing it. Because doesn't that hurt too? Doesn't it invite more pain into your life to go up to someone and say, hey, that hurt what you did to me. There's strife there and I don't like it. That brings pain. But if you could just kind of minimize it and push it down and say it didn't even hurt, then you don't have to do anything. It's coughing out is what it is. Oh, it hurt. It hurt. And you'll remember it. And the next time they do something, oh, you'll remember that too. You'll add it to the tab. Right? You'll add it to the tab. Another application is we are also free to stop leaving. This is leaving marriages. This is leaving families. This is leaving friendships, leaving community groups, leaving churches. Just, you're free to stop that. You're free to stop leaving. Life on life, that's not something that only works whenever there's chemistry. I mean, if that was true, then teenagers would never make it until they're 20 years old. It's just not chemistry-based. I mean, if you were only life on life with people that don't give you a hard time, if you're only life on life, whenever it's easy, if that's where you're at, then it's not really community you're looking for. It's affinity. Not only that, you're looking for paradise on earth. And I got a newsflash for you, you broke that. There is no paradise on earth. We broke it, right? In fact, in fact, the gospel shows us not so much that paradise is a place, which is what we've done in the culture here, but, but paradise is a person who came to us. And what we do as the church with each other reflects what paradise looks like. The church, the community of God, whether it's in the same household or in the same megachurch facility, the church is supposed to be the emblem of the foretaste of what heaven and paradise will look like. So we could stop leaving. We could stop leaving. Another application is we are free to start first and initiate. Listen, if you want to look like Jesus in any way, shape, or form, good place to start right here. He leads us very well. In Matthew 18, he says this. If your brother sins against you, so who's sinning in this? Your brother, not you. All right, let's get the personnel straight. Your brother sins, you are the victim. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone, that's a key word. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's a different sermon, the meat of that. I'd love to teach, but what I'd want to show you in this moment, notice who is leading the charge. You are the victim. When the other person has sinned against you, you are being charged to carry that strife to them. Leadership 101. We are called to do that. The ball is not in their court. It is not their deal. It is not their responsibility alone. It is yours. That is, to my mind, of all the bazillion books on leadership I've ever read, my favorite definition is leadership is just taking responsibility for the mess around you, even if it's not your mess. Even if you didn't make it. Taking responsibility of the mess around you. In fact, if we look at Matthew 5, 
it goes on to say something as far as the expediency of or the pace, the clip at which this should happen. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember, at that place, remember that your brother has something against you. Now you might be the aggressor in this case, right? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So if you just all up and wake up one morning and remember, oh my gosh, this guy's got a bub against me because that thing I think I might have done. I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure I did it. I think there's, but there's strife. There's clamor. I know that. Uncomfortable. The temperature drops a little bit in the room when we're both there. Something is going on. It could be explosive. Then you need to fix that. As much as it depends on you, you need to try and be reconciled. As much as it depends on you. Right? So let me qualify this so it doesn't lead to confusion. This jams people up right here this application, or it can. Number one, we are responsible for what others hold against us when it is sin. But if it's just us annoying them, that's just community. In other words, if I'm an extrovert and they're an introvert, and I just talk a lot at a party, right, it's not my responsibility to search them out and build some form of reconciliation and <laughs> repent or anything like that. They just got to get over it, man. I mean, I'm an extrovert. I'm not. That's a total. So in real world, that's swapped. I'm the introvert. If, if another extrovert did that to me, I, would, I wouldn't have any right to come to them and say, hey, listen, man, I've been waiting for months for you to come and reconcile this with me, but you're not. So I guess the ball's in my court. Truth be told, you're a little bit loud, and it kind of grates on me. Your personality is kind of, let's just say it's grating on people. I would like for you to fix that with me. Come on. So make sure it's sin to start with. The second thing is, is sometimes reconciliation will not happen. It's not a promise deal. And when it does not happen, you will have to live with the pain. In other words, if you bring strife to somebody else and try to reconcile it, and they're just not having it, then you're not responsible to make that reconciliation happen. That's why Paul says in Romans, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be peacemakers. Live as a peacemaker. As far as it depends on you, if possible. Because if you consider Jesus in this moment, did he not take every step required of a human being to make matters very correct with his enemies and still they had things against him? Still they had problems against him and were not reconciled to him. But so far as you have control, live as a peacemaker. Because peacemakers, and I'm driving this to an end here a little bit, peacemakers, they do show the world a better picture of how Jesus handles us, don't they? Peacemakers do that. When you and I, when we slam into each other, and you got a problem with me, or I got a problem with you, or we both have a problem with each other, and the lost world watches how you and I gently handle each other. <laughs> you could talk the gospel all you want. You could show them very clearly in how you handle each other. Friends, this is of vital importance. Our theology is at stake here. Right? Because Jesus never grew bitter with us. And, and also, he didn't act like our sin against him wasn't a big deal. He didn't minimize or mitigate our sin, did he? Oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. No, he showed us how big of a deal it was. It cost him his life. You want to see the price tag and how hard that sin was against him? There was a corpse in a tomb. It cost a lot. He was a dead king before he lived again. And he didn't wait for us to initiate either. 
He didn't just say, the ball's in your court. He led. Ball's in my court, I'm coming to you. God enters our madness. Our madness. Jesus became last by coming first for us. Jesus became last by coming first for us. Now listen, you can believe this. In the world, the culture at law, or at large, they will call you a doormat. This is what I just defined as called a doormat. As far as a lot of the the people, the voices in our culture would say. And, and if they were there standing with Abraham, they would have called him a doormat too. Hey, Abraham, what? Spine up. Get in that guy's grill. All he's done is complain and cause problems and mooch off of you. Get in his stuff. Kick his butt out of here. He liked Egypt so great, send him right back to Egypt. He didn't have to be here. You didn't ask him to come. That's what the world would say, and that would be normal. And listen, the world, it will... You cannot conceive of emptying yourself for the good of another person, even if it's their fault. That's craziness to them. It's craziness to the culture at large. Now, they will agree with you if you put yourself first. The culture will agree with you if you look out for number one, if you self-preserve, if you just give it the good college try, and then that was all you did. The world will agree if you harbor bitterness. You take record of wrongs. The, the world will agree if you say, I did all I needed to do. They got my number. Ball's in their court. The world will agree with that. They will nod their heads and they will agree whenever you say, if they want to th fix things and they know where to get me. They will agree, but they won't see the gospel in your life. They just won't. It's a lot on the line. So imagine yourself standing on a precipice overlooking a better land. Right? In this story, they were about 3,000 foot up, right? given the geography. In, in Appalachia, on, in the Smokies, that would be Charlie's Bunyan, if you've ever been to Charlie's Bunyan, that little outcropping. It's beautiful, though. You need to do it if you haven't been there. Stand on that outcropping. You can see, you can see as far as you can see. You, know, you can see forever. I want you to imagine standing in a place like that. You're not there with Abraham, and you're not there with Lot. You're there with Jesus. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, hey, there's a problem brewing between us. It's your fault. You have wrecked everything. You have created the strife. You have brought in the discontent, the clamor. You have done it. But listen, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to sacrifice for you and give you a better land. You know, this is the God of our gospel for us. Our hero is the better Abraham who led us well and trusted the Father. He is faithful when we are faithless. And he degraded himself so that we could be loved. Such a cool passage. Such a super cool passage. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this passage over you while you stand. This is Lamentations 3.23, even though it's not a lament. <laughs> the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That can only come. A, a lament like that or a psalm like that, a statement like that can only come from people who are totally satisfied going first and coming in last. They are totally fine with that. Worship like that doesn't come from a person, cannot come from a person looking out for number one, right? So listen, as we pray, and we're going to pray quickly, 
there's a pocket of you in here who are in strife right now. There's clamor. Infighting, outfighting, there's something going on. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. Who is driving that reconciliation? Who's driving it? Whose court is the ball in? Whose deal is it? Who is taking responsibility and driving that? Right? And is your reconciliation efforts, is it emblematic of what the gospel means for you and what Christ has done for you? Right? You're going to need to deal with that as you sing, as you take communion. And listen, we can see in Matthew 5, if there's a problem, hit the gas on that. Quit doing whatever you're doing. Waiting for them to flinch, waiting for the pain to get a little easier. Get that fixed. Get it fixed. And then some of you in here, there's another pocket, I believe, who are hurting because you have unhealed strife. Something. And it's because the other party's not having it. As far as you can, you have done everything you can do. You've tried, and then you've tried, and then you've tried, and you've run that course dry, and they're just not having it. And it hurts, doesn't it? Can I just say that Jesus understands that hurt exactly? That's part of the gospel message for us is how much he understands that hurt. So when you find yourself in the depth seated in that suffering, know he is there with you. He recognizes that suffering. He sees you. You are not alone. You need to know that. You need to know that. And then I do believe that there's likely a pocket of people in here who are lost. And when I say lost, I mean far from Jesus. Have no affection or love for Jesus at all. No fire to even stoke. Regardless of what you did when you were a kid at whatever camp you went to, you might even suspect that now in your life, that you were very far from Jesus. And you have relational disasters too. Strife. But can I just say that strife pales in comparison to the strife you have with the God of the universe. There has been a serious dislodging in the relationship between you and the God who has breathed life into you. A serious one. And you were at fault. And that is on your hands. The blood, the sin, the guilt, it's on your hands. But he initiated reconciliation for you. He went first. He went first to rescue you because he loves you. Just because he loves you. Because it's his beautiful will. So you will need to call him Lord. This would be a good day to respond to whatever God is doing in your heart. Because if you are far from God and you feel something stirring, you don't know what to think of it, maybe you're just nervous, you don't know, this is a big decision, you don't have the right words, you need to talk to me. Talk to me before you leave. Because this is what happens. The music starts up, everyone starts talking, everyone starts making it out to the parking lot, and you think, ah, it's not a big deal, I'll talk to Luke next week. I'm probably a Christian anyway. or I'm prob Listen, come up and talk to me. Let's talk. Let's pray together. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this time I've gotten to share. Looking at your word, this, this passage, Father, has ministered to me. And if it didn't minister to anyone else, I'm thankful for it because I am so radically changed by how you show me yourself in this passage so clearly. You're so good. And you're so beyond fair. You are graceful, giving us what we don't deserve, coming totally despite us. So, Father, as we pray and as we worship and as we take communion in little pockets of people, as we do that, Lord, that we would weigh offenses and bitterness that we have, infighting that we have. Maybe the person that we have strife with is in this very room. 
Lord, that we would even take communion with the people that are bugging us so bad, with the people that hurt our feelings so bad, the person that did that thing at that place at that time, and it, it just really popped us. Lord, if we could even take communion with them. Lord, that, we're, that we just would not be a people that let weeks go after weeks go after weeks without getting things like this solved. As far as it depends on us, Lord, embolden us and encourage us to fix strife with our eyes fixed on the gospel where strife was fixed for us. And Lord, I pray that you would also minister to the people in here who are hurting, who have a lot of open wounds and no promise of any healing. I have that and it hurts and it haunts and it follows. Lord, I'm so thankful that you understand what that feels like and I'm so thankful that you look at us and you tell us, I'm there with you. I'm there with you. Thank you. I pray that you would heal. And I pray that you would comfort us with the power of your spirit. And Lord, I know that there are people here who are far from you. And I do pray that you would regenerate their heart. That you would find them. That you would change them. That you would hold them close. Lord, that they would have affections for you and live the rest of their days following hard after you. You are so good to us. And as we worship you, we worship you, the God of the universe. We love you so much. You're so good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we enter into worship, I want to talk about this song for a little bit. Um, the other day I was having a conversation with a friend, and we were talking about how there's like a spectrum when it comes to music. And there are people that are lyric people, like they just focus on the words and what the words mean. And then there are other people that are more focus on the music itself, the instrumentation, and the rhythm. And I'm like a rhythm person, but, you know, God has blessed me through doing what we're doing on the stage and just being sacrificial and leading you all. It's forced me to be a, a lyric person. And this song, Man of Sorrows, is the gospel. Um, it's focused on Christ. It's focused on what Jesus has done on the cross. It communicates our response to that. And then it also talks about that Jesus is alive and he intercedes for us um, to God. He's an intermediary. He's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And um, I would encourage you, you know, if you don't know the song, or even if you're not singing or if you're singing, to just like focus on the lyrics and just process it and maybe even pray over it, you know, that God might reveal some truth to you through the lyrics of the song. Has been on cheese. 
Hebrews 12, 14. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one see the Lord.
ocean hit my darkened soul from rescue. I cried to God for help, He heard my voice. The tainted earth it rocked and reeled, the heavens bowed, the mountains kneeled, the thunderous voice of God my covering. Let's sing that verse again. A torrent of destruction hit my darkened soul from rescuing. I cry to God for help, He heard my voice. The tainted earth it rocked and reeled, the heavens bowed, the mountains kneeled, the thunderous voice of God my covering. I will not be
Pray with me. God, uh, we're so thankful that we were able to come here today, be in your presence, God, and worship you. Um, God, you are the most deserving for worship and glory because you are God and you created, you are glory. Father God, I pray that we would constantly be reminded of who we were before Christ in our sin, helpless, apart from you, running a race fast towards damnation and hell, joyfully pursuing sin. Father God, Christ changes hearts. He changes desires. God, and we are thankful for that. And may we respond to what Jesus has done out of joy for you and a pursuing of you. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. My name is Kevin. And before uh, I hand the mic to Scott here, um, I just wanted to make an announcement. Um, I am a part of a community of artists here at Legacy who are on mission, and we're doing our second, we're putting on or hosting our second photo scavenger hunt. And we're gonna be doing that this Saturday uh, at one o'clock at Market Square. So, if you like taking pictures, now you might be a pro, you might have you know thousands of dollars of equipment, most people don't, but some of us do, uh, then we'd love for you to come. But if all you have is your phone, and you like taking, uh, you know, capturing uh, the creation around us, God's creation, or the city, then we'd love for you to join us. Uh, what we do is we just meet, we go out, and we hunt for pictures. Then we're actually going to come together at a restaurant that's around Market Square, around the downtown area, and just hang out. And then we'll uh, share our photos up on a, uh, a Facebook album or something like that. Last time it went really well. It was a lot of fun. And we're tweaking a couple of things this time to make it better. So I want to invite you, uh, if you are interested at all, bring a friend, bring whatever kind of picture-taking uh, equipment you have. One o'clock this Saturday at Market Square. We'll just meet downtown right by the stage. Thank you, Kevin. Um, for those of you whom I have not met, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, pastor of operations to be specific. And today, as we do frequently, uh, we're celebrating. Um, we're uh, celebrating our ops teams, and we're uh, doing that with a luncheon this afternoon at Dead End Barbecue, beginning at one o'clock. So, uh, of course, all of our ops members are invited to attend. But we'd also encourage any of those of you who might be interested in participating in one of our ops teams uh, to please consider joining us. Uh, the the meal is on us. So you get a free meal. You get to hear about our ops team, and uh, if you have the slightest twinge within your heart to be of service to our church, then uh, this is a great way for you to do it and a perfect opportunity to, be learn, to learn more about it. So you are cordially invited to participate with us at Dead End Barbecue west of here, just a little ways down the road on the right, just past the traffic light, and uh, um, we'll see you there. Um, so at this time, I'd like to close this in prayer and uh, hope that you'll join us for the ops appreciation lunch. Gracious Father, we thank you for the word preached. We thank you for your teaching through the words uh, given by Luke, and we thank you for your spirit being upon him. We ask, Lord, for those of us who are called 
to serve you and serve in your kingdom, that you would fill us this week with faith beyond measure, that we would be bold in our service to you and your kingdom and to those to whom you've called us to serve. Father, for those who are with us this morning, who've heard the word preached and whose hearts have been tickled but are without you, I pray, Lord, that you would increase your conviction upon them and, and draw them near to you this week, that they would make a decision for you. And so, Lord, now I ask that you be with all those present uh, as they go their ways this week, that you bless them, bless their families, and may you, your name and your kingdom be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. to buy one of these t-shirts and and rock that on Easter. So that's what we're going to be doing this year, hopefully as a church. Um, I know my family's ordered ours, um, a couple other families. Roger's actually wearing one right now, so he's already ordered his. So there's a few of us that have already done this. So you go on our website, watch the video. Um, I'm sorry, go on our Facebook page, watch the video. It'll show you how to buy those things, get those here. Easter is April 16th, I believe. Is that correct? Okay, so I know there's a deadline on order, so go ahead and get that place goes to a great cause, and we'd love to support this local ministry. You can check them out, uh, Feeding the Orphans. They are right here locally in Knoxville. So go watch that video. Let's pray, and we will get out of here. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your word, um, the gift that you've given Luke to communicate that word clearly. God, to us this morning, working through him and his words, God, we are thankful for that. God, we are thankful for um, people you've placed around us, kneecap to kneecap, in close proximity, God, I ask that you would be with those relationships this week as we, as we uh, go about our lives throughout the week, meeting with people, um, having tough conversations, God, getting in each other's lives. Um, we are thankful for the opportunity and the ability to do that. God, I pray for each and every person in here today that they would know you, um, God, on a, on a different level after leaving here today. That this text would make them see you, your son, your spirit, God, um, in such a more clear understanding, God, than they've known before. So, God, I ask for your spirit to come and empower us, God, as we, as we go out on mission this week, as we do, do life in community groups, as we do life in DNA groups, God, as we do life in our normal, everyday rhythms, I just pray, God, that you would be with us. God, just uh, come, rescue us, be with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week.